it, it ends up being more of a, a race day nutrition strategy as opposed to a nutrition strategy that you practice as you would any you know, aspect of your training. Hello, and welcome back to the next episode of the Trail Running Women podcast, where we hear stories of badass women from across the world who are mostly just like you and me, but taking on some very amazing goals. And today we learn more about how to get that done by speaking with Shannon O'Grady, who is the COO of Gnarly Nutrition, and she holds her PhD in nutritional physiology and is amazingly well-versed in all things nutrition and the body. We had an absolutely fantastic conversation about female nutrition, race day nutrition, training nutrition, real food versus sports food versus nutritional habits for endurance athletes altogether, pre-workout, recovery, short, intense bursts, and how to fuel for that versus long endurance. The list goes on. We talk about the specifics for females and all of the things wrapped up in that. It was a fantastic conversation, and I really enjoyed speaking with her. So you can find more from her at Gnarly Nutrition. And I will link to that in the show notes. Today's podcast is brought to us by Knack Bar Nutrition. So Knack Bar is a Canadian company who is making some amazing bars, waffles, proteins from sustainable sources and sustainable packaging. So they care about the earth as much as ultra runners do and they want to fuel you for your races. So check them out at knackbar.com and use discount code TRW for 15% off at checkout. And I promise you, you will love the consistency of these bars that also have caffeine and a perfectly formulated carbs to protein to caffeine ratio to keep you going. Today's second sponsor is Spartan Trail Races. So you guys have probably heard of Spartan and I've been chatting about them before and they have started to do trail races anywhere from 5k to ultra distances and I have free codes for you guys. I have a limited number so you need to get this done quickly but I'm going to get you into a Spartan Trail Race near you for free. All you have to do is take a photo of yourself training for your Spartan race and use hashtag Spartan Trail along with tagging Spartan and Hillsport 55 and I will send you guys the discount code. It's good for any race in 2022 that's a Spartan Trail race. I am so excited for you guys to check them out. They're in the most beautiful places and they're so fun for the family. We are totally going to get Baker into one next year, and it will be his second race. If you haven't seen pictures of his first race, go to Hillsport 55 to check them out. They were pretty amazing. The last sponsor for today's podcast is Gooder Sunglasses. You guys have heard me talk about them a lot because I am absolutely obsessed with these sunglasses. I have them in every color and every shade for every type of light. So if you're like me and you have sensitive eyes, you can get a pair that has really light lenses that you can wear in overcast, in slight rain. And in the forest, you can still see the roots and the rocks, and that is the key for a light lens polarized glasses. They're super functional, and you know they are the most fun you are going to have on the trails as far as your face goes. So go to gooder.com backslash TRW, and you can check out some of my favorites. So you can get 15% off on sunglasses that are already priced very, very well, and I am getting a bunch for my whole family because they all love them and they make the best birthday gifts and everybody that I know is born in the summer so they're all getting an amazing pair of Gooder sunglasses. So use discount code TRW15 for 15% off at checkout and do not forget to tag me on Instagram when you're wearing your Gooders and if you want to see what they look like, go check out my Instagram at Hillsport55 because I wear them 
doing everything, including vacuuming, because they are good for everything in your life. Gooder.com. All right, I'm here today with Shannon O'Grady, who was recommended to me as someone who holds her PhD in nutrition physiology for endurance athletes from everything from pre-workout to recovery. So I have so many things I want to get into today. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Hillary. I'm super happy to be here. So first off, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us where you are, how old you are, and your elevator pitch? Okay. Um, I'm currently in Denver, but um, I live in Salt Lake City. I was here for a, a jiu-jitsu tournament, um, and I'm 44. I started as an endurance athlete, still love endurance sports, will always need to be on trails running, um, but have recently discovered martial arts. Um Sports were kind of the way that I got into nutrition. Um, I had a good mind for endurance sports, but quickly learned that not being dialed in on your nutrition um, kind of will lead to to many mishaps in racing. And so, being science um, kind of brained and and in a science program, it kind of set me up really well for pursuing sports nutrition, uh, particularly endurance sports nutrition. And uh, that's kind of the I mean, end of the story, I now work for Gnarly Nutrition, which is a um, sports nutrition company out of Salt Lake City, and um, we make uh, clean sports products for all types of athletes, but um, really interested in in mountain sports. Can we get a little bit into your story and, and what kind of gave you that realization? So where were you playing? Was it high school sports and were you facing injuries and, and how did you come to this? Yeah, no, I mean, I was always a runner. I started running in high school. Um, I had to take a, a a bit of a break. I, I had a, a weird heart issue that was diagnosed when I was in high school. So um, kind of about my junior year, I had to stop running. Um, but thanks to, you know, medical technology, I got that fixed early in college um, and started running again, started uh you know, did my first marathon, um, started getting more interested in endurance running, um, started getting into bike racing and then triathlon. Um, and it was really as I was looking to do Ironman distance and um, half Ironman distance races that the importance of what kinds of foods and in what quantities I took in during training runs, during racing, um, what worked with my stomach and what didn't and why. You know, I, I was in the graduate uh, program at the University of Utah um, for biology at the time, still trying to decide what to pursue. And it was kind of the overlap of that interest in endurance events and then also the science background that, you know, led me to where I am now. Um, worked with a lot of friends, you know, making my own bars, making my own, uh, you know, nutrition strategies. And um, it was just a lot of fun. And it, it, you know, both led me, you know, down the endurance route, tried more races, longer races, but also really directed where um, my research went as well. I feel like this, my next question might be a loaded question, get us into the entire podcast, but it's such a common story to be like, okay, so now I'm doing these endurance events and either two things are happening. I'm, I'm not finishing them. I'm bonking or I'm getting injured in training or I'm having digestive upset. Was it one yes. of those for you? Or yeah. you just <laughs> it was the latter. I mean, I remember, um, you know, I, I knew, I knew kind of the, the basic tenets of nutrition, right? I knew I was, I, you know, I knew I needed to eat. 
I knew I needed to be consistent. Um, I knew that, you know, eating on a regular interval was important. Um, But I remember I did um, the wildflower half Ironman. It's this great kind of trail mix between trail and road um, distance triathlon in California. And I had this plan, like every 20 minutes, I'm going to have a goo packet. Right. So I, I did that for the entire race. And I have never spent so much time in a porta potty. Um, it was say, that's a long race for that. It was right. It was horrendous. I, I don't quite remember how many goo packets went down that day, but I do remember uh, thinking heavily upon you know my choice when I was in the porta potty. Um, you know, so I, I had a lot of trials and tribulations like that. I, I never didn't finish a race, but I also saw a lot of friends, um, you know, end up in the med tent uh, because they fueled, you know, too late or, um, you know, have digestive issues early on in a race because of what they chose to eat beforehand. So um, it was a mixture of my own experiences and also the people I was training with. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, I think it's a pretty interesting space because I'm sure, as you know, different things work for different people. But what I think a lot of people forget to do is work out those details uh, during their training. Um, it, it ends up being more of a, a race day nutrition strategy as opposed to a nutrition strategy that you practice as you would any you know aspect of your training. And I think it takes a long time and I feel like you have to keep relearning these a hundred percent. I mean, I think, um, obviously like over the course of time, you know, as you evolve as an athlete, you know, things change, your fitness changes, you know, you get older, um, you realize certain foods work for you and certain foods don't. So, I mean, I think, um, being open to those changes and, and realizing that if, if something feels off digestively or like you, you know, said earlier, injuries are happening a lot. Um, or you're just not finishing your goal distances, you know, it's, it's clearly a time to, to take a step back and, and look at, you know, what you're doing, at least nutritionally that could, could contribute. So when you started doing your research, did you find there was a shockingly limited amount of research done specifically for female nutrition in endurance Uh, sports? A hundred percent. I mean, I think what, what you find more so is, you know, Yes, the lack of uh, research done on females, and then secondarily, you know, carrying over the results on males and and giving female recommendations without really giving it a second thought. Um, you know, and we can all credit Stacey Sims for really bringing this issue to the forefront. I think she's done a really good job. Um, you know, both through the books she's written with Celine Yeager and through you know her "Women Are Not Small Men" kind of tagline. Um, and it's great to see it being talked about and it's leading to more research in women and leading, you know, to research specifically looking at, you know, menstrual cycle and different hormonal fluctuations and how that can affect performance, can affect injury risk, can affect, you know, fuel usage, um, particularly during endurance sports or, or after, you know, during the recovery period. It's, it's great to see. So I have a couple of people who wrote in questions that knew I was chatting with you too. And perhaps we can just kind of pick your brain for a second. Do you mind? No, no, not at all. Okay. So when, like the first kind of question that I feel like gets asked a lot and came in in a variety of ways was, and you just kind of alluded to it with having 500 gels in a, in a long race. 
do you have an opinion on <laughs> real food versus sports nutrition in a race and the best kind of basic place to start with that before you start dialing in exactly what works for you? Yeah, I mean, I think most people will have kind of an intuitive feel whether or not they're, you know, open to using sports nutrition products. I think where they become convenient is that um, they're set amount of calories. They're usually in packaging that makes it easy to digest or easy to carry during long races, right? Um, I think at that same you know, place, we need to be aware of like the, you know, 500 gels in an Ironman um, story, you know, those are concentrated sugars, um, con- over consuming them can lead to digestive issues because of, of how your body deals with concentrated solutions in the gut. Um, they can also lead to flavor fatigue, you know, so I, I think, yes, they can serve a purpose. Yes, they work for a lot of people. Um, but real food or even like, you know, I would say sports nutrition like products. So things like baby food or pudding or, you know, they're, they're not branded as sports nutrition products, but, but you look at these now pudding in a pouch or baby food, food in a pouch and calorically, there's not a ton of difference between those and some of these other, you know, real food products that are out now. So often they're cheaper if they work, you know, in terms of a taste preference for you, give them a try. Um, but I also think, you know, we look at products like a goo pouch or, or these, you know, spring energy pouches, and there's some thoughtfulness put into what's included, whether or not it has electrolytes. Um, so there are pieces there also that you don't find in the real food replacements. Um, making food can also be a great, uh, you know, alternative to products like small boiled potatoes rolled in olive oil and salt were always, you know, a favorite of mine when I was on the bike. Um, I think, as I said before, it takes time to figure out what works for you. And often it might be a combination of things. Maybe you're bringing real food, but you have a couple of goos in your pocket, you know, for convenience, if you need them, you know, emergency energy that you'll absorb quickly. Um, And maybe you're using a sports nutrition drink that gives you a baseline of calories. So if you're not eating on a regular interval or you forget to eat, you're at least getting, you know, fluid, you're getting electrolytes and you're getting the calories that are also in that product. Um, So I'm not against them. I think, uh, as I said before, figuring out what works for you taste-wise, budget-wise, and um, trying different things is is kind of the the key. Yeah, I think that's that's good. I'm glad that you said that because that is what I tell athletes that I coach. And I like I found for me real food at the start. And then when I start to feel tired, but also like, like you're just starting to miss other things, I guess is the feeling. Um, then I'll start taking in some gels maybe in the last few hours of an 11 hour race, for example, or something. And it almost feels like rocket fuel if you save it for the end. Um, but same thing, if you start early, then I get major digestive upset. And then I have my training partner who I think is just a bit of a freak of nature and she will have 500 gels and it will not bother her and she will win by hours and then she's totally fine. Um, so there are the rare person out there, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think how, what foods work for people, how those people, you know, absorb and digest the foods, whether or not they have digestive upset, like your friend, these are all things that can, you know, vary from person to person. Um, 
even, you know, a lot of people see these super fast pro athletes and and want to know what they're doing for nutrition, which I think is a is a valid question and and you know, we're all curious about, but then also trying to replicate or or model what they do. I think can be trouble for a lot of people because, you know, we're not all pro athletes. We haven't been running for, you know, 20 plus years. So, you know, we might not be as fat adapted as they are. And that might be why they're not taking in as many carbohydrates as we need to take in. Um, so while I, I do find it really interesting to see what pro athletes do nutrition wise, I also find it really troubling when I, when I talk to people who are trying to, you know, replicate that in their own nutrition strategies. Yeah. And that actually is a really good lead into kind of the next question, which was about this kind of split versus you need a lot of carbs versus you can get fat adapted and maybe take in less during a race calories or carbs and running fasting fasted. And if that is different for women than men. So um, that's a huge topic. Yes. But what do you think about, I guess, first of all, how many calories an hour do you suggest for somebody? And what do you think about running fasted? Sure. Um, so I always try to start where the person is, <laughs> you know, so I can, I can say, oh yeah, you know, ideally there's a, you know, maximum threshold to the amount of calories that we can absorb. And that's about 400 calories, but you're burning more calories than that. So you want to get as close to that threshold as possible. But if the person you're talking to comes in and, and they've been only consuming 100 to 150 calories an hour, you can't start them off at 350 calories an hour, right? Um, so I always try to find out where somebody is and recognize that that both taking in more calories and taking in more carbohydrates can often require, you know, training of your gut um, to be used to those foods, to be um, used to the quantity of those foods. So while I do tend to recommend for longer endurance races, like getting up as close as you can to, to that 400, you know, usually for most people, that's between 70 and 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, um, which is, you know, 280 to, to 360 calories per hour. Um, a lot of people need to start lower and slowly work their way up. I'm, I think you can become fat adapted without doing fasted training. You know, it's, it's the LSD, long, slow distance training that we've all heard about for years and years and years, and nobody does it because it's boring, right? It's, you know, that really low intensity, really long training that gives us a great baseline and we should be doing in the off season. Um, there's tons of research showing that doing that kind of training leads to fat adaptation, leads to increased mitochondrial density in our, in our uh, muscles and leads to more intramuscular triglyceride storage, which are those fats that we store in our muscles. You can get there without doing fasted training. And I think fasted training, while it works for some people, and I'm not saying a hard no on it, it can be dangerous for a lot of people. And I think most people that try it don't really understand that you can do, you can, you know, accomplish fat adaptation through other means. When you're doing that, you can have breakfast and would you take in calories during that 15 mile and it's still, your body still because of that intensity level will stick to burning fats, not the calories you've just taken in? Yep. 
Wow. Okay. That's amazing. I mean, it's it's not all or none. So when you're burning fat, you're not right. not burning carbohydrates, right? Your body's using a combination of fuels, but because you're below your VO2 max and you're able to, you know, take in enough oxygen to supply your energy ma- demands via aerobic metabolism, fat is a is, you know, is a great fuel for use, you know? So it's when we get into higher heart rates where we, you know, aren't able to bring in enough oxygen that we really see carbohydrate metabolism kick on more and become more important. Um, But there's always fat kind of burning in the background. It's just going to be at a greater proportion at that, those lower intensities. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, fasting clearly um, if you, you still have to be at that low heart rate, but fasting clearly, you know, might, yeah, might affect or, 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 um, give you adaptation a a little bit more quickly. But I think, as I said, it's a slippery slope. Um, I think a lot of people end up doing those runs too long anyways. Um, and I just worry about what can happen, um, when, when we're in that fasted state, when, when we're calorically depleted and, and all of the, you know, negative downstream effects in terms of recovery and potentially potential injury risk. You can get into a, a mental battle if you start thinking you need to run fasted as well, and then maybe not taking in enough calories after for recovery. Um, and I always feel like, okay, we're so past this, it couldn't happen anymore. And then I'll have an athlete say, oh, I'm training and I'm and I'm still gaining weight and I don't quite understand what's going on. And then they tell me they're eating 1500 calories or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what, how? And that still seems to be like even um, registered dietitians telling people that that's kind of where they need to be to lose weight or, or they have a macros coach, whatever the heck that means telling them, you know, don't go above 1850 on a hard effort day. And the whole thing (laughs) can get so like muddled in your brain. And then here you are like an actual focused on performance, talking about 400 calories an hour, which will blow people's minds. Um, So can you speak a bit to the science of if you are exercising and you're not taking in enough calories, what's going to happen to your body? Yeah. I mean, are you, are you talking about like acutely during the run or? No, I mean like in general, like if an athlete is running 50 miles a week and they're trying to stay under 200 calories a day, including their in run nutrition, um, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean it so um growing up it I'm I'm going to speak specific to women just because of um you know the the topic of this podcast. Yes, but you. you know um you know I, growing up it was called the 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 women's athlete triad um or you know it was specific to women the athlete triad right this combination of um you know loss of menstruation, low body weight, low energy um when you don't get enough energy, um, and it's often associated with uh, eating disorders. But I think that is a myth because I see this happening in a lot of cases where people are overtraining and simply not taking in enough calories. So it's when um, you're not taking in enough calories, either intentionally or unintentionally, to meet your energetic demands. And um, Currently, what is what it's called is Red S. Um, so the athlete triad um, has been 
you know, that, that has been shelved, that term, and the term that's being used now is red S. And, and it's generally a mismatch between energy spent and energy taking in. Red S stands for rel- relative energy deficit um, syndrome, I believe. I always forget what the S stands for. But it can affect men and women. Um, I think it's way more prevalent um, in women than in men, but uh, it's, it's not gender specific. And I think that's important to note. Um, so it can be caused by too low of energy intake, too high of energy expenditure. And then of course, you know, both having low energy intake and high energy expenditure. Um, the most like easy to, to, um, to diagnose problems are, are general fatigue and menstruation, but it can have issues um, that are wide ranging, in, including uh, immune issues, so getting, getting sick a lot, uh, gastrointestinal issues. It can lead to uh, cardiovascular issues, particularly in adolescence, which you know this can be a big problem in. Um, it can end up uh, causing growth and development issues. It's, it's wide ranging um, and early signs uh, tend to be, you know, what we just talked about, loss of period, GI issues, getting sick a lot. Um, but there are more and more studies coming out and I think it's being addressed more and more, particularly in sports where uh, it's thought that power to weight ratio can confer uh, increase in performance and faster times, um, particularly in running and track events, but also in more power sports, things like um, gymnastics. Um, So you see this pressure for a long time to be the lowest possible body weight in order to excel in sports, and it ends up resulting in um, both acute issues and long-term issues, so things like low bone density um, and stunted growth. Yeah, I think people don't realize how serious it is when they're in the midst of it, but it's a total mental fuck too. I've had so many athletes, like you just talked about, um, who were college runners on the show who had similar experiences and then stress fractures that they couldn't get rid of, or rowers, same kind of thing. Um, Jiu-jitsu yeah. was one that I found interesting because you're trying to train, but you're also trying to make weight, which yeah. was a whole thing. Um, and I do want to get into your jujitsu a little bit. I'm just going to finish through these questions first. Well, yeah, I, I, um, it's interesting because the, the weight cutting that you see in martial arts or MMA or wrestling, it takes a different form, right? That's more like acute cutting, but it can also have, you know, hormonal effects. Um, whereas a lot of what we see with red S is kind of long-term, um, you know, caloric insufficiency and it can lead to, you know, long-term issues. We, I've dealt with, you know, climbers who have gotten bone scans and find that, you know, in their mid thirties, they have early signs of osteoporosis. It's, oh, it's from that, you know, long-term, um, energy insufficiency. So I just found like, I had an MMA fight where I fought at one thirty, but I weigh one fifty. Oh, and yes, it was a lot. It was a yeah. lot to make weight. Um, and it became more because it took me a while to get there than to mentally be okay with how much I had to eat if I wasn't trying to drop a drastic amount of weight and my hormones went totally crazy. And then Mm -hmm. of course you end up ballooning back up and you're not just like the whole thing. It definitely had long-term effects. Anyways, that's a whole other sidebar, but um, there's lots of aspects to it for sure. 
But getting more into the specific nutritional needs, uh, one question that comes up all the time, again, is what do you think about protein requirements for female athletes? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I love talking about because I think um, I think protein is something that for a long time people associated with strength athletes or with this, uh, you know, bulky or super muscular physiology. And so both for females, sadly, and then also for endurance athletes, um, the importance of protein wasn't really stressed. Um, and so it's always, it's always a subject that I lead with because I think it can have a huge increasing protein in your diet can have a huge impact on recovery and training adaptation. Um, I think for those that are looking um, to improve body composition, adding more protein, you know, can positively in, uh, affect lean body mass. And I think for women, particularly, um, particularly those uh, that are aging athletes, you know, I put myself in that category. Um, it can have a huge positive impact on uh, longevity in sport and also on bone mass, you know, as we age, the ability to keep moving, the ability to stay active. That's, that's really what's going to have a positive effect on health, I think, into our later years. So I typically, similar to talking to someone about how many calories they start, you know, they're starting with, I, I always try to get a good idea of where somebody's starting with in terms of protein intake. I don't recommend, I don't care, you know, what sport you do, but my recommendations start at 1.6 grams of protein per kilo of body mass. Um, and then depending on goals and, uh, you know, what sports, um, what the sports focus is, it could go up from there. But most research shows that 1.5 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilo of body mass is really where we see enough branched-chain amino acids in the diet, enough essential amino acids in the diet to really maximize muscle protein synthesis, to really optimize recovery, and have a positive impact in terms of training adaptation. So, um, I'm first of all, I'm super glad you said that because the, people sometimes don't believe me and then you google it and it's like 40 grams of protein today is enough for an athlete and you're like Jesus you're like what the hell somebody needs to go in there and fix google um do you think so this is something I I know nothing about but I feel like there's not a lot of information out there either does that requirement change at all when you're going through menopause um so what I see so by no means is menopause um I'm, I'm learning more about it as we go. It's it's not something that um, I've had a ton of research in terms of the fine-tuned details. Most of what I've read is that um, really it's it's quality and, and type of carbohydrate that we need to pay a little more attention to as we're going into menopause, as well as the timing of that carbohydrate intake. If anything, protein intake should be emphasized. Um, both men and women, uh, the anabolic window um, kind of moves a little farther from where it was when we were younger. And so it takes a little bit more protein to really optimize muscle protein synthesis. And so if there's a time to increase your protein and get it closer to, you know, maybe the 1.8 or even two grams of protein per kilo. I know some recommend all the way up to 2.2, which is a, a gram of protein per pound of body weight. You know, that's the time to, to do it. What I see with most older athletes that I work with is they're so far away from that to start with that as opposed to putting like a hard 
line in the sand with like, you absolutely need this much protein. We slowly try to increase protein intake and not only that, but optimize protein intake. So it, you you know, it's, it's not just that total number you should be focusing on. It's also how that protein is distributed throughout the day. You know, we don't want skewed protein intake. We really want consistent protein intake, um, you know, every three to four hours trying to get in um, at least 20 to 25 grams of protein at every meal or snack. Um, that's where I start. And then if we can inch it up to try to get to those higher numbers, um, it, is, it is really important as we age. Awesome. Thank you for the specifics there as yeah. well. People always get, like I said, there's so much information on the, on the internet. So I think people do get tripped up and like, can I have 50 grams at breakfast and be good for half the day? And I think there is a limit to what your body can absorb in one sitting. Is that correct? That's actually, that's actually not correct. It's not oh. a, a limit to absorption. It's a limit to the benefit. So, oh, okay. um, you can, your body can absorb that protein, but there's, um, um, there's a threshold in terms of the impact that, um, branch chain amino acids, particularly, which are the amino acids that, um, and leucine in particular, that kind of turn on the machinery for muscle protein synthesis. So there's a limit to that impact. And that most research shows that that kind of levels out, I'm going to say around 30 grams, there's a little bit of um, error, standard error um, on either side of that number. Um, but you're absorbing the rest of that protein. It's just not having any more of a benefit than that smaller 30 gram doses. Um, so what they've shown, it's kind of quick, just run through this study really quick. I, I think it kind of helps people understand why that distribution of protein is important is they, they did this study where they took, um, I'm going to use 80 grams, just, I think it was 80 grams, but I'm using it for ease of math. Um, but they looked at skewed, what they called skewed protein intake, where that 80 grams per day, which I think was at about 1.5 grams of protein per kilo of body mass for the, for the um, participants of the study. But they um, took that 80 grams and they split it into two meals separated by, I think, 88 hours. So it was 40 grams in the morning, 40 grams in the, in the evening. And they looked at um, compared that to uh, taking four 20-gram meals, so separated by, um, I think it was three hours uh, over that same period of time, or they looked, the last group was um, eight, I'm going to call them snacks, but of 10 grams. So all three groups, and that was every hour and a half. So all three groups had the same amount of total protein, but what was different was both the portion size and the amount of time between that portion in each of the groups. And they looked at total muscle protein synthesis in those groups. And the highest muscle protein synthesis was in the second group that had a 20 gram dose separated by three-ish hours. And that's because at about 20 grams, you're getting close to that, you know, leucine content where we're hitting that threshold and you're getting that consistently throughout the day. So you're never bottoming out in the 40 gram dose. Although we hit that threshold, there was such a gap between those meals that you see a bottom out in muscle protein synthesis because the concentration of leucine in your blood went down, um, you know, below a certain level. And in the, you know, eight, snacks of 10 gram group, right? We never had enough protein to actually hit that threshold. So we are never kind of maxing out muscle protein synthesis. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. That makes perfect sense. Okay. 
are there any negative consequences to that excess protein that you're not getting the benefit from? I think I saw on like an Instagram post or something. Somebody said it, it kind of is received as sugar if your body doesn't know what to do with it after it's had enough. Is that... No, I mean, so there is a, a pathway called gluconeogenesis where we can take amino acids and turn them into into sugars, but that is really a small contribution to to, um, to glucose use. You really see that more kind of when your body's in a low energy state and is trying to find calories somewhere, and we might uh, break down muscle to turn them into into glucose, right? So you you see that. Um, you know, in cases like that, but it you're not really going to have excess amino acids that are turned into large amounts of, of glucose in our body because of high levels of protein intake. Okay, great. What about pre and post workout? Do you have sort of a macro ratio that you think is ideal? Uh, for endurance sports? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, pre-workout for me goes all the way up to, you know, it, it depends, you know, two to three, the meal, you're going to have two to three hours, or if, if you're uh, lucky and have a lot of time and can eat three to four hours. Um, I don't have ratios specific to those meals, but um, they should be, you know, rich in carbohydrates, the longer out, the more carbohydrates you should be taking in um, moderate, if you have at least two to three hours, moderate amounts of protein can be helpful, um, because you're, you're getting those amino acids in your system. Um, before exercise, which can minimize the amount of muscle protein breakdown, which can eventually have a good, uh, you know, impact on recovery. Um, and we should be minimizing fat and fiber because they slow digestion. And, and at that point, you know, that meal is really about setting up our glycogen stores. So we're, we're starting the race um, with full stores in, of liver gly glycogen, full stores of muscle glycogen. You know, but often people can't, you know, if your race is at 6 a.m., the idea of waking up at 3 a.m. to get, you know, a 300 to 400 calorie meal in is is uh, not ideal. And so, you you know, the closer you get to your race, then the smaller that meal has to become both uh, so you have time to digest it and um, you're not starting a race with, you know, a full belly that, you know, might not might not feel so good in early, early stages of a run. So uh, typically, if someone has about an hour before they run, I, I recommend um, 100 to 150 calories of easy to digest carbohydrates. This is when, you know, fruit can be great. If we haven't had protein, and you know, we're starting uh, the race early in the morning, this is also a time where uh, an amino acid supplement could be great, because you're, you're getting that same benefit of having you know, branched chain amino acids in your body, um, but without ha having to take the time to digest full protein. Um, so that can be a good thing to take and that sets you up for recovery. Uh, Post-training is where, you know, that ratio um, comes in. De if it's glycogen depleting, you want to really be getting in the three to four parts carbohydrate to one part protein. And I I'm a big believer in <laughs> making sure we get in that, uh, you know, protein dosage that's going to maximize recovery, particularly post-workout. So for me, um, when I recommend make recommendations to athletes, that's usually at least 25 grams of protein, which would then take your um, carbohydrate intake you know, to 75 to 100 grams of carb. Um, and looking at that as something that can both replenish glycogen and also kickstart muscle protein synthesis and help us recover 
um, is is really the goal of that meal. And if if we're talking about really long, um, you know, events, so things, uh, you know, that are six hours or more than taking in carbohydrates consistently um, in the hours following your training or your race is key. So um, about 1.2 grams of carbohydrate um, per uh, kilogram per hour for actually four to six hours post-training. So consistent intake of carbs is really going to help you recover from really long days if you're doing two workouts a day or, or potentially you're doing some kind of a um, you know, multiple event uh, type, type race. Oh, that's a really good tip. I haven't heard that one before, but it kind of makes sense because you could have your post-race meal if it's a really long race and then suddenly later on you get this like insane craving for high calorie junk food and maybe that's your body reminding you that you should have had those carbohydrates. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have, you know, I think when, when we throw out numbers like grams per kilo per hour, you know, people are like, (laughs) get turned off from that a little bit. But I think the take home from that is right. Your, your post exercise nutrition shouldn't necessarily stop at that four to one or three to one meal or, or, you know, smoothie that you're going to have after your race. Right. consistently taking in carbohydrates in the, you know, hours following, it's only going to help you feel better, you know, the next day or, um, you know, the following day when you, when you go out to run again. Totally. It's the following day that I notice it the most. Yep. Um, and if you want to be improving, you need to feel good every day, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it, it affects what you can get out of that next workout and it affects what you just, the adaptation that you, you just got from, from the training run you did. So um, I think it's a pretty important meal. Totally. Um, so that's actually a good segue into, into your jujitsu because we talk a lot about endurance, but so many people are doing high intensity kind of intervals, whether they're going to some sort of boot camp class or martial arts or just maybe training intervals on the bike. Um, and so I do want to touch on the nutrition side of jujitsu type training as well. Um, but for people who don't know what it is, tell us, uh, if you can explain what jujitsu is and how you got into it. Sure. Um, so jujitsu is a martial art that, um, I practice Brazilian jujitsu, but it's, you know, basis is it's really closely related to judo, which was, um, started in Japan. Um, it Brazil was really where modern day jiu-jitsu kind of evolved and it came over into the US and gained a lot of acclaim with kind of the growth of UFC because you saw a lot of um, jiu-jitsu athletes having success and the reason for that success is is many fights end up on the ground and um you know a, a jiu-jitsu the closest thing for people that don't know is is it's a lot like wrestling um so you're using um angles and leverage to get uh, dominant positions um, on your opponent. And then you're using things like, depending on whether we're talking about gi or no gi jujitsu, but you're, you're using chokes either with a collar or, you know, using your arms um, or joint locks. So things like uh, arm locks or ankle locks or knee bars um, to submit that opponent. And I got into it. (laughs) So I, um, I was pregnant with my second, um, my, uh, 
my son, my my second kid. And I think a lot of women, you know, I was pretty active during my pregnancy, but I was also secretly plotting my return to being more active. And <laughs> at, at the time, um, was was talking to a colleague at work and they had had a background in martial arts, not jujitsu specifically. Um, but they, because of my size, I'm, you know, shorter, smaller woman, um, suggested, they were like, oh, I think, you know, you'd really love jujitsu. It's a great martial arts for self-defense. It's particularly great um, as a self-defense for smaller people because of the use of angles and leverage. You can really um, overtake larger opponents, uh, you know, taking strength out of, out of the equation, um, you know, and so they had started talking to me about it, was kind of interested, had always been somewhat interested in martial arts. And then I had another person who had uh, an influence over me in terms of, of strength training also recommend it. Um, and the company I work for, Gnarly Nutrition, we do uh, team building activities. And there was a jujitsu gym, um, you know, down the street from our old office. And we, we happened to do, so I had two people telling me about it. And then we happened to do this, um, this team building activity there. And at the time I was training for a, a 50 mile trail race and it piqued enough curiosity that I was like, okay, when I'm done, when I'm done with this race, I'm going to come back and give this a try. Um, and I think a lot, like a lot of people, if, if it's for you, um, it piques your interest and becomes an addiction pretty totally. <laughs> Are you gi or no gi? Both, both. Um, I prefer no gi, uh, you know, if given a choice, like when I compete, I'll like the, the competition I did yesterday was a, a no gi competition, but um, I do compete in both and I do train both. I think um, they're interesting in different ways and um, there's positive feedback from, from training both. Totally. How did the tournament go? I lost, um, but I I had to compete in the adult division because sadly no uh, masters athletes signed up. Mm. Um, so I felt pretty good uh, for going against someone that was twenty years younger than me. <laughs> I made her work for it, so uh, I was I was proud of that. I think if anything, um, and I'm sure you know this, Hillary, but martial arts teaches you perseverance and. Um, and it, it's definitely there's there's some mental strength that goes into to not giving up when you're in a bad position and and fighting through. People talk about lows in races, and I am like, there is nothing worse than a five minute round when like somebody is on top of you and you have to get out. <laughs> like yeah. that that physical moment is so hard. You've got to dig deep. <laughs> I got beat so bad because it was points, and I just had no technique. I would just try to outmuscle people. And a points tournament was, yeah, not not what I was ready for. The no gi was a bit better, but man, it was it was demoralizing. That's for sure. But it's such a it's a, such a cool sport like that. Yeah, it really is. And I think you know what's interesting is because there are you know attacks that you can do from either top or bottom position. You know, if you do manage, if you're on bottom, you know, and you do manage to to get in a position where you can you know, throw a leg over and get an arm bar, or you can, you know, um, you know, rotate your body, your hips, so you can, you know, get ahead an arm choke or something like that. It's, it, it, it what's interesting about jujitsu is it can have those turns where you're like, whoa, what just happened? Um, it's fun to watch too. I think for, for people totally. that, um, that are just curious about it, I would, I would recommend checking it out. Yeah. It's so, it's such a fun, different 
like if there's so much camaraderie in it as well, it's a, it's a nice supplement, I think, to to endurance. But it is. I'll always, like I said earlier, like I I will always be a runner. I think um, getting out on the trails, trail running, and particularly you know scratches an itch that nothing else does for me. But um, but also having jujitsu, like the the two complement you know what I need in my life in terms of athletics. Totally. So we are going to run out of time pretty quick. So I want to maybe get your top three, if there are three, things that would be different that you would do nutrition-wise if you were doing a lot more kind of short, high-intensity bursts in training as opposed to an endurance, whether it be event or training. Sure. Um, I think, you know, especially if we're talking high-intensity, we you know, we mentioned earlier uh, in terms of fasted training and fat adaptation. Um, where aerobic metabolism, as we increase intensity, you know, we get the switch over to getting energy also from anaerobic metabolism. So then we're burning carbohydrates aerobically and we're burning carbohydrates anaerobically. So um, really, really emphasizing carb intake um, ahead of any high intensity exercise, making sure that um, you get a quick, you know, carbohydrate hit. 20 to 30 minutes, you know, maybe that's 20 to 25 grams of carbohydrate, so 80 to 100 calories um, before you're going to start your workout is really going to help because that boosts your blood glucose, get the most out of that workout or help you feel your, your best during that workout. Um, I think the other piece that a lot of people um, forget about often is, uh, is the creatine phosphate pathway, which is... Um, what we use as our quickest form of energy um, in power and strength uh, related movements. There are also, I mean, I could do a whole podcast on creatine and the benefits of creatine. That's not the only benefit of creatine, but it, it does have a huge impact on, on things that are strength-based or power-based. And, and there is that you know, dynamic and high-intensity exercise. Um, so potentially adding creatine supplementation in so you can really maximize the energy that you get out of that, um, I think is, is a one thing that particularly women um, tend to shy away from. But as, as someone who's recently started supplementing with creatine in the last few years, I'd say it makes a huge impact. Um, so I would also recommend considering that. And then uh, I think hydration status is another is another really important uh, emphasis, both for for um, endurance athletes and more high intensity athletes, but I think it gets emphasized in endurance sports and it doesn't get emphasized in high intensity. So making sure that you're starting hydrated and that you're you're uh, continuing that hydration post post workout is also really important. The I wish we had more time. I have so many things I could ask you. The creatine that's super interesting. Um, I feel like we don't have total time to get into it now, but do you have something from Gnarly Nutrition that you can recommend for people who are interested in in learning more about that or trying it? Yeah, yeah. So um, we have just Gnarly Creatine. It's straight straight uh, creatine monohydrate. We use um, Crea Pure, which is a, a branded creatine out of Germany. It's really high quality, been tested, um, you know, in terms of purity and contamination. The gnarly product um, is NSF certified, which means that it's tested for label claim and microbes and heavy metals and pesticides. 
It's also NSF for sport certified, which means that it's tested for all banned substances on the World Anti-Doping Agency list. So just a really clean product. Um, and I think a lot of people think uh, with creatine, you have to do a loading phase, which is taking high levels of creatine for, for a week. Um, it's not necessary. If you want to try creatine, you can start with a, a smaller dose, which is about five grams a day. It takes about three weeks to saturate our muscle stores of creatine when we start with a smaller dose um, to really see the benefit. But um, creatine is probably the most researched sports supplement out there. And I'd say uh, the most proven sports supplement out there in terms of um, ergogenic benefits, like we talked about with strength and power. Um, even sprint speed, right? It's, it's about a 10 to 20% increase in uh, sprint speed or measures of strength um, across the board, no matter what study you look at. Um, but there's also a lot of research showing that it helps minimize injury risk, um, that it can help with, uh, you know, um, adaptation um, to heat and humidity. So it can help with heat tolerance, that uh, it helps um, reduce acid buildup in our muscles, which can help with endurance. Um, and then there are really interesting studies coming out now that it's showing that it can help with depressive symptoms. Um, and there can be some uh, neurological benefits, particularly uh, in the case of a spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury. So um, I really, there are some doctors that recommend everybody should be on creatine for the entirety of their lifespan. And uh, it got a bad rap in the early days. But as far as a safety profile and as far as a supplement that um, is effective, I don't think you can find a, another one with the track record that creatine has. No kidding. Well, sold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah, like, I don't even know what the bad rap that I had in mind was other than just like, oh, that's something my husband takes, but I wouldn't take it. And I have no idea why just one of those things you just believe what you're told. And that's so ridiculous. So, um, thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you in general. This has been so good. Um, I probably will have you back actually. Maybe we can do listeners right in if you're interested because I just think you're a wealth of information and thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, I would love that. Those are my favorite things to do. I love listening to questions people have and and talking through them and helping find solutions. So that would be a joy, Hillary. So if our listeners want to find more from you or learn more about Gnarly Nutrition, um, where should they go? Um, GoGnarly.com is our website. Um, my email is shannon at gonarly.com. If you have questions, feel free to email me, um, whether it's about our products or just about nutrition in general. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, am on Instagram, but I don't really, it's not really like a nutrition um, source of nutrition information. It's cute pictures of my kids and, and jujitsu <laughs> and being outside. So <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, I'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes as well. Um, and you'll probably hear from me with questions too. So have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks so much, Hillary. Really appreciate the time.